Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. title of my message today is Unsung Heroes. Unsung Heroes. Verse 1 of chapter 24 of Genesis. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who rolled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed. For all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, drink, and I will give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, he was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a drink, uh, give me a drink, a little water from your pitcher. So she, she said, drink my Lord, then she quickly let the pitcher down, to her, uh, down her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished drinking, uh, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her pitcher into the truck, ran back to the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And the man wondering at her remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. And so it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels of gold. And he said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Michael's, Michael's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feet enough and room to lodge. 
Then the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth towards my master. As for me being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Amen. Amen. I want to speak to you, as I said, about unsung heroes. Uh, these are people who are rarely ever in the limelight. They never get to play the leading role. They just normally just play a bit part. No one pins, pins a medal on their chest. No monument is ever raised up in their memory. No ticker tape parade is ever for them. They are part of the story and a very vital part of the story. It's just that they're overshadowed by the bigger figures around them. Eliezer was such a person. He lived in the shadow of the great Abraham, the father of the faith. And even though his role was important, particularly this particular thing he was asked to do, in the grand scheme of things, he still was playing a bit part, really. But there's something very admirable and commendable about Eliezer, this humble servant. In verse 2, he is described as Abraham's eldest servant. So probably eldest by age, but certainly uh, eldest by seniority. The first time he's mentioned is in Genesis 15, 1, 1 to 4. This is before Isaac was born and Abraham was without a son. Son of promise hadn't come along yet. And without a son and an heir to all of his wealth, then probably that all would have gone to Eliezer, this servant. In fact, if I can just read from Genesis 15 in the New International Version, just a couple of verses, it says this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And so that would have been the way of it. But, of course, the son of promise then eventually would come. And that's what makes this all the more interesting in chapter 24. Because Abraham asked Eliezer to go and find a wife for his son, the son of promise, Isaac, who is now by this time 40 years old. Now, there's nothing unusual in those days in a father uh, looking for a wife for his son or looking for a husband for a daughter. That was not unusual. Perhaps what was a little unusual was that he was 40 years old and he's still single. In those days, that was a little bit unusual. And so maybe Isaac was a bit slow of the mark regarding courtship, maybe. But more than likely, it was because they were living among the Canaanites and definitely Abraham would not want his son of promise to marry in a Canaanite and in a Canaanite family. And so this is why then he's sending Eliezer, his old retainer, out to find a wife for Isaac. Now he would not let Isaac go on his own and find a wife because he may stay there if he found a wife in Mesopotamia and that's not the land of promise. Cana is the land of promise, not Mesopotamia. And so for all of those reasons, he sends out Eliezer to find a wife for his son Isaac. Now I would encourage you, I would encourage all of you to prayerfully 
and carefully read Genesis 24. We didn't read it all. It was a lengthy reading, but they were only halfway through that chapter. It's a wonderful, wonderful chapter of the providence and the grace of God and the leading of the Lord. It's wonderful and the obedience of a servant. Now, for Isaac, he must have a wife and they must have children so that the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would make of him a great nation and in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that would only come true if Isaac had a wife and had a child and that's why it was important. And because he was 40, time was moving on so it was time to do this and to get it going. But Eliezer was just a servant but God singled him out to play this cameo role between Abraham and Isaac. And the result would be that a nation would be born, would come forth out of this story. A nation that would shape world history, even to this very day. And more so, a nation that would usher in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And so even though he's playing a little role, a cameo role, but what he was doing was vitally, vitally important uh, for history and for the world, actually. Now, our lives, as far as this world may be concerned, we may also be just unsung. I mean, who knows us? And yet God, in his providence and in his wisdom, may yet use us in some way, in a significant way, maybe just one time in a significant way to use us for his kingdom and for his glory. I want to draw your attention to some of this unsung hero's qualities. Consider this, and this is why we read in Genesis 15. Consider that until Isaac was born, there was a hope, there was a chance that all Abraham's riches would have been inherited by Eleazar. He knew that. He knew that if Abraham did not have any family, that all his master's riches would have come to him. But whenever Isaac was born, he knew that was gone forever. He would never, ever, ever, ever have the chance to get Abraham's riches. But the wonderful thing about this humble servant was there was not one ounce of resentment in him. He cared not a jot about that. You know, to Eliezer, Abraham's relationship meant more than Abraham's riches. Abraham's relationship meant more than Abraham's riches. He loved his master for who he was, not for what he could get from him. And we have a master too. And we want to serve that master, not for what we can get, but for what we can do for him so that he will get the glory. So this shows us the, the type of man that Eliezer was and the love that he had for his master, Abraham. And this reminds me of Jonathan and David. You remember how King Saul, his son Jonathan, who was a warrior, he was a soldier in the army. And yet it was only David out of all of the army of Israel that faced that nine-foot Goliath of Gath and defeated him and cut his head off and brought it to show Saul. And when that happened, whenever Jonathan saw that, he was absolutely just overwhelmed by gratitude to see what this young man, because he was a soldier, he didn't go and take on the giant, but this young lad did. And at that moment, 
Bible says the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. There was, some, there was a spiritual connection on at that moment that would last the rest of their lives, in fact. And so it says his love for David was more than the love of a, for love of a woman. There was something special that happened at that point. And, and that was wonderful when they were young. But later on, years later on, whenever King Saul, because of his pride and his arrogance and his disobedience, God refused him to be king anymore over Israel. He rejected him to be king and he chose David in his stead. And yet here's Jonathan. In the natural, he's next in line. It was his throne. He would be the one to succeed to that throne. But he knew that God had chosen David over him. And yet, like Eleazar, there was not one jot of resentment in him. He still loved him as his own soul. In fact, he saved his life on occasion after that. He so loved him. And so our love to our master should be that, that we should love our master and that we should want to do everything we can for him and for his glory. Secondly, his service to his master was one of love and obedience. Notice how he framed his prayer in verse 12. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. 20 times in that chapter, he says, my master. He called Abraham my master. He loved to just use that term. And that shows you how of a servant's heart he had that everything he was doing was for the glory of his master. Notice what he said, please give me success this day. Not for his sake, not for him to appear great, not for him to be elevated in the eyes of men, but it was for his master. So his master would be blessed, his master would be pleased, his master would be raised up. That's what his heart was like. And that's what our heart should be like with our master that we serve him not to be seen of men, not for people to think how great we are, but how great he is. That's what we should be like. He kept calling him my master, my master. He loved his master. His service to his master was just one of excellence. You know, this was an incredible assignment he was given. It was a seemingly impossible task. Now, it's hard enough to choose a partner for yourself, isn't it? It's hard enough to make that choice. But to get one for somebody else? To get one for Abraham, the father of the faith, for his son? I mean, this was no mean feat. I mean, this was way above his pay grade. It really was. But yet Abraham entrusted him. God was entrusting him to do this. And... It was 500 miles away from home. You know, Mesopotamia was a long way away. It took days and days to get there. And here he is, and he has got to make the decision. Now, he couldn't phone Abraham up and say, oh, by the way, Abraham had a great idea. I was thinking about this. What do you think? You know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not sure if it'll work, but I think it might. What do you think? He couldn't do that. Or he couldn't phone Abraham up and say, oh, by the way, I forgot to ask you when I left. Isaac, does he like blondes, brunettes, or redheads? You know, what, what does he fancy? He couldn't say any of that. He had to choose. He had to pray and say, God, I've got to get this right because my master Abraham and Isaac is dependent upon this. I've got to do the right thing here. So here he is, he prays one of the smartest prayers he ever prayed in his life. Boy, did he pray. 
In verse 13 and 14, he said, Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, Drink, and I will give your camels to drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I know that you have shown kindness. There is again to my master. Common courtesy would have dictated that that young woman would have given this old, tired man a drink. I mean, they had traveled 500 miles. He was aged. He must have looked tired. He probably felt tired. He was thirsty, and he asked the young woman for a drink. Common courtesy would, hospitality, sure, she would give him a drink. That, that wasn't a thing. But for her and her own initiative, without any prompting, to say, oh, by the way, I'll give your camels a drink also. Ten thirsty camels. Can you imagine how much water that ten thirsty camels would drink? I mean, that was a big thing to do. She didn't have to do that. But that showed him two things. First of all, that was the indicator. She's the right one. This is the answer to the prayer I prayed. But secondly, more than that, it indicated what type of a person she was. You know, she was kind, she was considerate, she was pleasant, she was lovely, you know, she was thoughtful, but she was industrious. I mean, it's hard work. I, I don't know, because I don't know how much a camel drinks, I'd imagine it's a lot. But to run back and forward with a bucket to that well, it must have taken her a long time to make sure those camels was thoroughly thirsty, quenched. It must have taken a long time, hard work in the, in, in the heat. But she did it. See, she was industrious. And that was a good sign for Eliezer because if he was going to take back a wife for Isaac, I mean, she, she needs to be somebody who's prepared to roll up her sleeves and do some work. You know, I mean, she needs to be industrious because there's a lot to do. I mean, Abraham and Isaac was wealthy people and they had lots of herds and cattle and servants, households, and she was going to be involved, so she had to be industrious. But not only that, she was virtuous. Because it says in verse 16, she had never known a man. So she had kept herself pure. She was virtuous. She wasn't flighty. She didn't sleep around. She kept herself till the right one came along. And that was very, very important to find a wife for Isaac who was virtuous, that was pure because of what she was going to have to do for the kingdom of God. And not only that, it says that in verse 16 that she was very beautiful to behold. <laughs> she was a stunner. <laughs> now, that doesn't hurt, sure it doesn't. I mean, if you're, going to, if you're going to pick a partner, I mean, uh, you know, we know the Bible talks about the, the inward person and the beauty of the inward person. We know that. But I mean, you're going to look to find one that's really good looking, aren't you? As far as beauty is now, beholder, I know that. But to you, you want one, boy, you really fancy this one. I mean, she was a stunner. She really was. She was beautiful to behold. I mean, she just looked beautiful. I mean, she wasn't tugboat Annie. You know what I mean? She really was just a good-looking woman. So it all, all the boxes are ticked. He's going to take her back to his master. And boy, he was pleased because God had answered his prayer. And he got the best-looking woman in town, industrious, virtuous, considerate, kind, loving, all of the, all of the things that was just perfect to make a good wife for Isaac. And so, 
The clincher was. It's all going very well, but the clincher is, who is she? And so he said, uh, who's, who do you belong? Who's, who's your family? And then she tells him who her family is. And it was Abraham's brother's granddaughter. <laughs> I mean, it just keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? It was Abraham's brother Nahor, his granddaughter. And, and that just clenched That was it. That was just the final thing to say, God, this is perfect. You've led me. You directed me. You brought the right person to my side. I'm going to take her back. And then he told her, there's a whole story you should read that goes on of how he's just to the family and then they realize. And then he says, look, you know, we need to go quickly. I don't want to stay here. We need to go quickly. And how that the family says, well, we'll let her decide. You know, we'd love her to stay for a while. Let her decide. And they said, well, what do you want to do? She says, I want to go right now. I mean, just let's go. She was so keen. She just wanted to go and she wanted to see Isaac. And if you read on the story, it's a beautiful story how she met him in the field. You, I'll not spoil it for you. But you just go ahead and read it today. It's a lovely, precious story of how they met and, and what they were like. And so here is an unsung hero who did an incredible job for God set out that day thinking, oh Lord, help me today. I need your help. I'm praying, Lord, you've got to do this because I can't do this on my own. And he couldn't. And how the Lord just put the whole pieces together just to find that perfect wife for Isaac. And she was a perfect wife for Isaac too. So we looked at a man in the Old Testament. Now let's, in the, in the finishing part of this, let's look at a woman in the New Testament. So could you come with me to Romans? Romans chapter 16, the last chapter of Romans, please. In Romans 16, the Apostle Paul, he mentions by name, I think it's 26 different people personally by name. And some is implied, well, there's no name. And these are people that, that he felt was a help to him, that helped him in the kingdom business. And so he, he mentioned them. Now, apart from one or two, like Priscilla and Aquila, that great husband and wife house church team that is mentioned in Acts and in Second uh, Timothy, apart from them who were pretty well known in the church, the rest of them, most of them, he just mentions their name. And just blesses them and thanks and mentions their name. We know who they are. We know nothing about them whatsoever. But there's one right at the very beginning. And I want us to focus on her. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Censorea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Phoebe is one of those unsung heroes. It does tell us a little bit about her here. Censorea was a port city quite close to the great city of Corinth. And there was a church in Censorea. And Phoebe was a deaconess because when it said that she was a servant the word is diakonos, which is where we get deacon and deaconess from. And probably her role in that position would be to look after the new believers, particularly the young woman. And she would look after them. 
and, and teach them and encourage them and perhaps visit the sick in the assembly and, and do whatever needed to be done. And there, no doubt there'll be others doing that too, but it, this is what it says about her. And in verse 2, Paul says, she has been a helper of many and myself also. Helper here is prostatus. And it means one who stands by in case of need. And so she would stand by. She was always on standby in case of need. Whatever needs would pop up in the congregation. Maybe somebody sick, somebody missing, somebody not well, somebody this, somebody that. She would be standing by and she would go alongside and she would help that person. That would be her role within that uh, within that church. Paul says she also was a, a helper. And the word is sucker of me also. We don't know what she did personally for Paul, but he was, he, was, he, he was appreciative of it that he actually mentions it. Oh, by the way, she was a great helper to me also. And then Paul realizes that she has gone off to Rome. Now, maybe she was a businesswoman on the side. We don't know. But she was going to make a, a trip to Rome. And when Paul heard that, he decided, well, well I write a letter to the church at Rome. I'll write a letter to them and she can deliver it. And so in writing the letter, he writes a commendation of her to commend her to the church. In those days, if you want to visit another church, uh, particularly in business, or especially if you're going to preach in another church, you had to have a letter of, of commendation from your church, from church elders or leaders to say you're bona fides, that you're genuine, that you're not fake, that you're good and so forth and you're a good track record and then they would accept you. Well, this is what he's doing here with Phoebe. But more than that, it's not just a recommendation to this church at Rome, but it's his personal endorsement. And nobody, I mean, for the apostle Paul to endorse you, that was, that was a good thing. Nobody's going to argue with that. Sure they're not. And so here she is and Paul writes this letter and it's a long letter. We know it as the book of Romans. You've got it in your lap today. And it's a wonderful, wonderful letter. This letter isn't just any letter. For 2,000 years, this letter, this book of Romans, has been the bedrock. This has been the foundation of all Christian theology. That's how important it is. If you took Romans out of the New Testament, we would have a massive hole we would not be as knowledgeable about, the, about Christ and about his purpose because in the book of Romans, he, he explains in detail the purpose of the cross and the reason why Christ came and the importance that the law played in the Old Testament and the importance grace has played in the New Testament and, and Christ, you know, his, his, his work today at the right hand of the Father and all of these things and much, much more he explains in the book of Romans. So it's a powerful, powerful theological treatise that the church needed. It really needed it to pull everything together to make us wise and understanding of what the, the gospel is. This is the gospel according to Paul. So it's wonderful, tremendous. And just reading the preface to the book of Romans written by an Augustinian monk called Martin Luther, John Wesley, sitting in that little church in Aldergate Street, says, my heart was strangely warmed. See, John Wesley was a missionary to America, to the colonies. And he went out there and when he was going out there, he realized because there were storms on the way out in the ship 
and there was these Moravian Christians and they were content, they were relaxed, they were at peace. And they looked at them and thought, well, I'm not at peace, I'm not relaxed, I'm afraid. And I thought, what is it they've got that I haven't got? And it bothered him. And then they shared about the way of salvation. And then he came home, dejected. It was rejected, by the way. Came home dejected, seeking and wondering, what, what's happening to me? Where am I before God? And he went to that little church. And the, the preface to Romans was read. And suddenly he realized, he realized at that moment, he says, I put my trust in Christ. My heart was strangely warmed. And I knew from that moment on, I knew I was born again of God's spirit. I was saved and born again. And the rest is history. John Wesley went out, of course, and George Whitfield and others went out and he blazed, Wesley blazed a trail all the way through England. And then the whole Wesleyan revival began that continues around the world to this day. There's Wesleyan churches around the world today. And all of that, you can trace all of that back to Phoebe going to Rome with this letter to the Romans. And I like what Renan said. Renan said, when Phoebe sailed away from Corinth, she carried beneath the folds of her robe the whole future of Christian theology. And she didn't know. <laughs> she didn't know. And Paul, I guess, didn't know either. He was writing to the church at Rome. He probably didn't know that 2,000 years later that's become the most important Christian document in the whole world. And there she was, carrying it in the folds of her robe all the way to Rome to deliver it. An unsung hero. What if she lost it? What if the ship sank? <laughs> it was a dangerous trip in those days, but she carried it. She is an unsung hero. Almost 8,000 verses in the New Testament. And she's just mentioned two of them. But what a mention. Aren't you glad she's mentioned? And ever since then, women all over the world has named their little children, little girls, Phoebe. We've got little Phoebe in church here. Little Phoebe Notarte. Precious little Filipina child. And her mother... Her mother told me this morning, she says, you know, I always wanted to call my daughter Phoebe, but she says, I had two sons. <laughs> and she says, I thought, where's my daughter? And then my daughter came along and she says, I knew exactly what I was going to call her. I was going to call her Phoebe. And that's a great name, isn't it? D.L. Moody was just a 15-year-old boy, Dwight Lyman Moody. And he was sent to work in his uncle's shoe shop <clears throat> And the deal was, if he worked in the shoe shop, he'd have to go to Mount Vernon Church just down the road to Sunday school. And so he did. And after two weeks, the Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, had felt a real burden for this young man, a burden for his soul. And he, he actually went up to the shop on the main street, and he walked up and down in front of it, plucking up the courage to go in and talk to him because he's at his work among strangers. And so eventually he, he goes in and he puts his hand on the 15-year-old boy's shoulder and he says, young man, I am concerned about your soul. That's all he said. Young man, I am concerned about your soul. And he walked out. And young Moody thought, this man's only known me two weeks and he's concerned about my soul. Surely then I need to be concerned about my soul. If he's concerned, I need to be concerned. 
and he went into the back room and he was concerned. Then he got burdened about his soul. And before he came out of that room, he bowed his knee to Christ, received Jesus as his personal Savior. And that young man went out. Every Bible student in the world knows D.L. Moody's name. They've read his books. He built a great Bible school that's still going to this day and a great church, the Moody Memorial Church is out there. And Bible students in every Bible school in the world read his books. It's reckoned he preached to over 100 million people in his lifetime. Can you imagine that? Everybody knew D.L. Moody, the great American evangelist of the 19th century. And what an evangelist he was. Untold, countless souls came to the kingdom through that one 15-year-old boy that that unsung hero, Edward Kimball, unless you're a Bible student, you probably never heard of Edward Kimball, but he was the one who was burdened for his soul. Billy Graham and his friend, his mate, they were just very young men, just teenagers. And he went to an evangelist called Mordecai Ham's tent meeting. In those days, they'd pitch a tent up in a field and they'd put sawdust up the middle, up the middle aisle. It was called the sawdust trail. And anybody that wanted to receive Christ and make a commitment to Christ, they'd come up the sawdust trail, he would say, and come up here and bend your knee to Christ. And young Billy Graham did that. The other mate didn't. He still stuck in his seat. Young Billy Graham went up. Mordecai Ham led him to the Lord. And Billy Graham went on to be the greatest 20th century evangelist who led countless, countless people to Christ. You know, a missionary to Africa told me, Bob McAllister, some of you know Bob, he's passed on now. Bob told me, he said, I lost count of the missionaries in Africa that were saved through Billy Graham's crusade in Harangay in England and London in the 50s. He says, I've lost count of the men who's on the field today and just in Africa. But how many knows Mordecai Ham? <laughs> Unsung hero. He didn't know that day he was leading that young man to the Lord that he would become the foremost evangelist in his generation. He'd become friend to many presidents. He didn't know that. <coughs> He was just an unknown evangelist, an unsung hero. So what about us? What about you? What about you? What about you watching and listening today? <coughs> Maybe God is, God's going to use you and you and you and you in a significant way. And you could become an unsung hero. Maybe people will not know about it. They'll not write it in a book. You'll not be on TV. There'll be no memorial for you. Nobody will pin a medal in your chest. But God knows about it. He knows about it. And as long as he knows about it, you'll be rewarded for it. Amen? So there are unsung here. There's many of them in scriptures. Hardly get a mention. And yet they did a great work for God and his kingdom. Amen? Come we pray. Lord God, we thank you that your plans for us are good and not for evil. And they do give us a hope and they do give us a future. We thank you, Lord, that there's every one of us that know you and love you and serve you. We can be used for your honor and for your glory. And Lord, while others may not recognize us or know us or ever hear about us, 
Yet, Lord, you can use us to extend your kingdom in ways that you purpose. So I pray for everyone listening today, here and there. I pray, Lord, that you will use them in some way. And Lord, even if their church doesn't even see it or if their friends doesn't even see it, Lord, you see it and you know it. And only heaven will fully describe the importance of it. So we give you thanks today for all of your mercies towards us and your many, many blessings in our lives. And Lord God, help us to be the Eliezer to serve you and call you my master. And everything we do and say and how we live will be to your honor and to your glory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen and amen. So God bless you. Hope that you tune in next week and come and join us here at MPC. And God bless all of you. And we hope that you have a great week this week. Amen. We're in September. We're nearly in the middle of it. Time is moving on. And the nights are beginning to darken, aren't they? The nights are dropping. But anyway, life moves on. So we're going to move on with it. Amen. And we're going to move on with God. So, amen. Amen.